Goldie and Bendy. Hello, this is the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times. But the modern world being what it is, no one has time to say all that, so they just call me Waldy. And of course, I'm not alone in this podcast. I have a co-host, and not just any old co-host, but one who was born 500 years too late, because he's a Renaissance man. A man of many talents, just like Leonardo da Vinci. So, when this man looks in the mirror, he sees, staring back at him, Rodneb Ronev Zorg, otherwise known as Idneb. But when we look at him, we see him the right way round. We see Bendor, scion of the house of Grosvenor. Oh, Bendy, I prefer you the right way round. Thank you, Eldie. How nice to see you. Well, that's quite a convoluted introduction. Uh, one of your best yet. It must take a long time to dream that one up. <laughs> Do you know what I am? I'm Ramedlav Katsunai. Oh, very if, good. If I was like, if I was like you, if I was a Renaissance man like Leonardo da Vinci, I would be Ramedlav Katsunai. Really? No, I think of you more of as an early 17th century man. Uh, you were one of those um, roundheads portrayed by William Dobson, about to launch against me into battle in the Civil War, the English Civil War. Oh, no, no, you got it all wrong. William Dobson didn't paint round heads. He painted cavaliers, you know, guys with long hair, guys oh. like me, you know, yeah. fast action men. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we can't talk about that because, um, Bendy, I think we've broken the record on this podcast for cramming in the most things. It's absolutely packed. Uh, we're going to be deciding if a Caravaggio is a Caravaggio. Uh, and we'll be examining the interior decoration tastes of our very own Louis the Sixteenth, the Prime Minister, and his <laughs> consort Carrie Antoinette. Also, Bendy will be celebrating spring with a special corner of the podcast devoted to gardens in art. And I'm going to be forcing some more Yoko Ono on him because that's the kind of man I am. And don't forget, listeners, if you want to look at what we're talking about, not just hear about it and go to zczfilms.com. Go past the on-demand pages where you can order pretty much every film I've ever made and on to the podcast page where it's all there, all the pictures where you can look as well as listen. First, though, it's time to face up to some tough stuff. Stuff you might not want to hear about. It's shocking news from the art world. Ah, Bendy, the, uh, the art world's gone into overdrive this week with tons of news about this and that. Uh, not all of it is shocking, but most of it is surprising. For example, someone in Spain says they found a new Caravaggio, right? So we go for 100 years without anyone finding a new Caravaggio, and now it's almost a regular event, isn't it? Yes, this was a picture that came up at an auction house in Madrid in Spain called Ansorena. And um, they had one of their sort of fairly regular old master sales. Uh, and this picture was catalogued as Circle of Ribera. And the subject is um, an Eke Homo. So Christ is being presented by Pontius Pilate to the people of Jerusalem. And behind him is someone holding up a, a cloak about to put it over Christ's shoulders. Now, this is a very Caravaggio-esque picture, but all sorts of people got very excited about it and thought it might be by Caravaggio. And the picture was withdrawn from sale and has been subject to a an export order from the Spanish government. The Prado Museum is investigating, and everybody hopes that this might in fact be a lost Caravaggio. And the people who were going to sell it for the estimate was 1,500 euros, might in fact be banking a slightly more significant windfall. Mm, indeed, yes. Uh, do you know what? Um, I actually had a look at this auction before the Caravaggio came out, because, you know, I sort of I plough through all the auction pages, as you do indeed, looking for stuff. And I, I, I completely missed this. I skipped past it. But there was another picture in the auction, which was actually a portrait of Endymion Porter. Um, it was a copy of Van Dyke's portrait, the self-portrait of Van Dyke and Endymion Porter. And there was just like a, the bit of it that shows Endymion Porter had been copied by somebody else. And so I sort of honed in on that. I thought, great, because that has links with, um, with your guy, Van Dyke, with my guy, William Dobson, um, and missed this. Obviously, the, the big thing is, right, what do we think about it? Is it right or is it wrong? 
Um, and I've got one big problem, which is I can't find a really, really good reproduction of it. Mm. Uh, I don't know about you, but they all seem a bit murky, and uh, you can't really see it properly. It's tough to to opine, isn't it? But I have to say, uh, looking at it um, as best I can through the murk, it's rather uh, it's rather convincing, I think. Um, and I don't usually feel that way about things that have popped up um, at auctions and been discovered. You know, the sleepers thing, which you do so much, um, it, it, I'm usually filled with suspicion about it. But it's just <laughs> Christ looks good. You know, it's got that caravaggio physiognomy um the two characters particularly the guy on the left um of the guards who are looking after him as he's being crowned with thorns um they have a caravaggio feel to it there's that red cloak that he's being as you said the red cloak he's being wrapped in there are a series of paintings of christ by caravaggio including the great flagellation in naples which have that beautiful kind of crimson to them um so I like, I like it. I like it. The only thing that makes me slightly wary is the format. So it's a vertical, but it, it, they're leaning against a kind of balcony at the front. So there's a, a railing, which is a very uncaravage-esque thing to do. I can't think of another Caravaggio that has that slightly claustrophobic sense of a, of a railing at the front. Um, but in my uninformed state with the not many pictures going and rather bad reproduction of it available, I reckon it's pretty good. What do you think? Well, like you, Weldy, I had a look at the sale and I sailed straight past this painting as I <laughs> scrolled through the catalogue. Um, it didn't really register on my radar at all. Now, um, I think that's because my sort of my eye is usually filtering out portraits and these things, because if, if I'm good at spotting anything, it's, it's probably something with a face in it, a portrait. I think if I had clicked on the image and zoomed in, I might have got a little bit uh, excited about this, but I probably wouldn't, to be absolutely honest, have gone, that's a lost Caravaggio. So... A number of the commentators, a number of the people who sort of um, come out of this story and said after it was withdrawn, oh, oh that was a Caravaggio and I spotted it too, has been, has been quite numerous. I don't think I would have said that. Um, it's certainly Caravaggio-esque. Um, some of the brushstrokes are a little bit, you know, sometimes Caravaggio sort of nudes, they're quite porcelainous, quite smooth. Uh, and this one, the brushstrokes look a little bit beefy in places. But, you know, I, it's, it's very dirty. Um, it's as you say, it's difficult to make a conclusion, really. So one thing that strikes me is that a number of the people saying it definitely is by Caravaggio and it definitely isn't on the basis of the photos. Well, that makes me suspicious because as I flatter myself as occasionally being able to tell these things from photos and in my experience, you actually can't. So uh, for, for all the people saying either yay or nay on the basis of the photos online, well, that you just can't make that opinion. So we have to wait to see. I really hope it's a Caravaggio. One thing that um, strikes me as a little bit uh, problematic with the it's by Caravaggio theory is that a number of people are linking it to an inventory of a Spanish nobleman who was called Juan de Lescano. Um, and now he, in his collection in Naples, and eventually this collection found its way back to Spain, is recorded as having a Caravaggio of Eke Homo, um, which describes this picture, but with one rather crucial difference. It says that Christ had a purple cape being put on his shoulders. And the cape in this picture, in Anserena in Spain, is very much red. Um, so what we have here, in order for this picture to be by Caravaggio, we need the connoisseurship stuff to all add up. But we also have to displace from the Caravaggio catalogues another rival Eke Homo, which until now has been considered to be you know, the one that's recorded in all the documents. And that's at the moment in a museum in, in Genoa, in the uh, Palazzo Bianco. So it's quite a tough one, this. It's not over yet. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy either way. And I tell you what, Weldy, if I had been the people consigning the picture, I think at this stage, I probably would have taken a gamble and left it in the sale because sometimes pictures that people get really excited about can make it auction vastly more than they're really worth. So I probably would have rolled the dice and let all the dealers and optimists uh, bid it up as a possible Caravaggio. And then if it isn't, mm. well, then that's their problem, isn't it? Mm. Oh, you see, that, Bendy, that's because you have big cojones, right? And you, you're prepared to take those sort of big <laughs> risks. Um, I mean, this lot, uh, as far I, I think I read somewhere that they've they've handed it over to the big art dealers, Colnagis, haven't they? That's and right. Colnagis are going to have it cleaned up and restored and to look at it properly, and then they're going to put it out there for experts to see and view. 
Um, so by the end of that process, I guess we will know something clearer about him. Um, look, it's it's a lot better than the last one that came up, I think. You know, a few, a few a couple of years ago, someone found a Caravaggio in an attic in Toulouse, mm. and it was a Judith and Holofernes. And although I thought the Judith was rather beautiful and felt pretty good, the, a lot of the rest of the picture was very wobbly and, and looked sub-Caravaggesque. So it's better than that. Um, I mean, because Ribera has a great painter in his own right, you know, um, and, and has every reason to be painting this sort of picture. So it was originally in the catalogue as a Ribera, wasn't it? Or School mm -hmm. of Ribera, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I can't, the, the original estimate of 1,500 euros, I mean, that seems ridiculous just on its own, doesn't it? I mean, it, whatever it is, it's a pretty valuable looking picture, isn't it? And, and even if it is School of Ribera, that's, that's a lot more than 1,500 euros. But I mean, Ribera was a, was a great uh, follower of Caravaggio. You know, he lived in Naples a bit later. He did much the same sort of thing as Caravaggio did, without perhaps the, the slightly homoerotic glamour of some of Caravaggio's Christs. Mm. So the, the Christs that Caravaggio painted, they're not just tortured, they're, they're kind of beautiful. They, they do have this sort of glow. I think this is what you were referring to about the glowing bodies, the, the flagellation in Naples or the, that great one in Rouen, the museum in Rouen. I mean, they're just gorgeous guys, apart mm. from being Jesus Christ being, you know, tortured. This hasn't quite got that. I mm. mean, it, it is a more miserable looking glum Christ, which is more in the spirit of, of Ribera. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's not a bad shout, personally. Um, but again, what have I seen? I've seen a few illustrations, um, nothing really concrete. So I suppose I'm going to have to join you on the fence really about it. But um, it, it is exciting and it's great that it's popped up at an auction and it just does fill you with this excitement about going to auctions, doesn't it? Who knows what, what you can keep finding out there? Oh, it's the most thrilling thing. And it's also a great way to learn about art. So we encourage everybody to um, scroll through the auction catalogs, don't we? Even though that might reduce our own chance of finding the odd sleeper, are they? That's right, and particularly in the internet world. Um, okay, so sorry, listeners. I'm afraid uh, Waldy and Bendy sitting on the fence in the end on this one. We need more information. Um, but I, I wonder if we're going to sit on the fence on the next item we're coming to in shocking news in the art world. Um, because listeners, particularly if you're in Britain, if you're in England, if you're not that fine new listener in, in South Africa, um, and you're not the 49th listener that we've now added in, in America, you might not know that um, our seat of government, where the Prime Minister lives here, 10 Downing Street in London, has recently been the subject of some controversy because it turns out that the, that the Prime Minister uh, and his consort um, may well have spent a bit too much money from um, controversial sources decorating their flat at Downing Street. And some stuff has come up about the way they might have decorated it. And people have been, I think I think it's fair to say, rather aghast by what might have been happening up there because there's a sort of new Rococo mood afoot um, up at 10 Downing Street. A designer called Lulu Little, yes, that's really her name, Lulu Little, has been brought in to uh, decorate the new flat for the Prime Minister and his consort, who has been rather tragically rechristened Carrie Antoinette rather than Carrie Simmons. And what evidence we do have of Lulu Little's taste and the possible things that have been going on up there at Downing Street isn't very heartening, I think, is it, Bendy? Uh, well, it's, it's quite louche, I think you would describe <laughs> it. From what we've seen so far... Um, it's very floral wallpaper, bold colours, uh, oriental pictures and prints. Um, it's very much like Waldi, and I'm sure this has been a regular haunt of yours, uh, the <laughs> Annabelle's Nightclub in Berkeley Square in London. <laughs> That's the chic. Have you been there? I haven't been to Annabelle's, no, but you're going to tell me all about it because I know you have. Uh, well, I used to be a member long ago before I grew up. Oh. Um, and it's were. it's the sort of you know it's the real. Isn't it where old blokes go to pick up um, young debutantes, that sort of thing? Uh, it's a sort of posho, louche, rather tragic nightclub. But uh, for those in that set, it's considered <laughs> the, the most important and most exclusive nightclub you can belong to. Now, it's just the sort of place, as you say, that someone like Boris Johnson uh, might shuffle in of an evening, having had probably a late night vote at the Commons and one or two too many sherries and think, oh, I fancy my luck here. Um, so that's the taste. And I think he's he and Carrie perhaps have sub supplanted that into Downing Street. Now, what's really interesting is um, there was an article on Artsy published about the art that had been chosen from the government art collection by Boris Johnson when he moved in to 10 Downing Street. 
And one of the sets of pictures that they discovered had been chosen for Downing Street was a series of cartoons of the interior of Annabelle's nightclub. <laughs> so I think I think there's a sort of Annabelle sheet going on here. Now, um, I don't know that we can, without seeing it, really be too critical of the taste of what they've chosen. Uh, we could probably be a little bit more critical as the cost of it all. I mean, um, it, it seems to be nudging 100,000 quid that they've spent. I heard 200,000 oh, quid, goodness. yeah. I mean, I think what we can be certain of is the mood, can't we? I mean, this is, it's a sort of neo-Rococo mood. It's, there is no surface untouched, as far as I can tell. Um, and indeed, they, they have a particular penchant, it seems, for this idea of, um, of, of, of wallpaper going with the furniture by having the same design on it. You know, like if you, you know, like people moan about if you wear denim, you know, denim on denim is considered bad if you have like a denim top and denim jeans. Right. Well, floral on floral surely is bad if you've got floral wallpaper and then a floral armchair in front of it or floral city. There's a lot of that. <laughs> and then what I find peculiar, there's a lot of post-colonial sort of art uh, dotted about, at least in the other work that we know of impeccably well by Lulu Little. Um, she favours things like pictures of Indian elephants and maharajas uh, in their tents and a, a general sub-colonial vibe interspersed among the floral boudoir wallpaper. So it's all the opposite of minimalism, isn't it? It's, it's, it's maximalism, super maxed with a Rococo mood. I'm looking forward to the real evidence of it all, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't bode well, you know. Um, it just speaks of a lavish way of life. And, and, and Carrie Antoinette and a new Louis XVI, Boris Johnson, you know, it's not a good thing. It's not, it's not a good vibe to be displaying, I think, if you're trying to um, hang on to all those working class seats in the north of England that got them elected <laughs> in the first place. If you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, with an unknown number of children, because we're not allowed to know these <laughs> things, um, then I'm not sure that sort of publicising your sort of harem chic is really the look you want to go for to satisfy <laughs> the, the northern working class voter. But they've done it now. And as we record this, the scandal is getting a little the cash for curtains, they're calling it. Uh, it's getting quite hot for the Prime Minister. It might yet even cause him some significant damage because of the way they've been funding it, which looks extremely dodgy. But we'll um, we'll wait and see. We might have to revisit this one. We might. Um, yes, we might. Uh, and we'll see what happens to Lulu Little, um, the interior designer. I mean, that's a, for me, that's a sort of crazy name to give yourself if you're a, an interior designer. But hey, what do I know? Yes, we'll, we'll revisit it as soon as we get some more information. Um, but that's not all the shocking news this week in the art world, is it? Bendy. Um, we've also just heard about terrible things happening uh, in Korea of all places involving the National Portrait Gallery, haven't we? Well, great news if you're South Korean, because an exhibition in Seoul will feature, it says here from the Portrait Gallery's press release, 78 of their most significant portraits shown together internationally for the first time. Um, and this is going to include, you know, major, major works like the Chandos portrait of William Shakespeare. Now, that's the sort of one of the holy grails of, of British art. So it's quite something that's been uh, dispatched off to Seoul. Um, and this show is happening while the NPG in London is going through its uh, rather controversial uh, closure and makeover. And, well, bully for South Korea. But I think that uh, if these major works were going to be leaving the Portrait Gallery for the first time, it would be marvellous if they could have gone on tour around the UK. Well, yes, except that I disagree with you about the major works bit. Now, I know the Chandos portrait, the portrait of William Shakespeare, which I think was like the first picture in the National Portrait Gallery, yeah. Shakespeare being who he is and all that. I know that's going out there. But if you look at the list of the other things that are in the show, I mean, there's portraits of David Beckham. There's portraits of various pop stars. There's, there's portraits by Michael Craig Martin, the modern artist. It, to me, it's it's not actually full of the best things. For example, there's no William Dobson going, going <laughs> over there, you know, and that's already a lack. Instead, it's, it's, it's a sort of trendy show of, of British people that people in Korea may have heard of, and it's arranged thematically. So it's not a chronological history of Britain in some way giving us a real sense of the nation through some kind of um, monumental display. Instead, it's something that I think is trying incredibly hard to be very contemporary. So lots of photographs, lots of modern types. Um, and so the show itself doesn't 
really ring my bell, I must be honest with you. Just, just again, just judging by the press release, um, I, I would have thought they could have sent out a more imposing selection of things. But I guess that, you know, they're, they're, this is what museums do these days, isn't it? I mean, because the National Portrait Gallery is closed for three years, which is absolutely outrageous, absolutely outrageous, that none of us can go and see that stuff for that long time. What they tend to do, isn't it, is they tend to send their, their collections out to make some money, don't they? I mean, yeah. these things are never sent out for free. Um, so they're making a few bucks on the side by by foisting david beckham and co on the uh, poor old koreans um throwing in shakespeare throwing in a bit of elizabeth the first but basically giving them all the trendy young people that other koreans have heard of etc so oh it's annoying for various reasons but for me the two that stand out is one that it's happening at all you know that, that the gallery's been closed and therefore they can get rid of all this stuff but two that it's not really what sounds like a very representative view of the great history of british portraiture yeah it's all about raising cash this isn't it it's pimping out our um icons our british icons and our portraits to raise some hard cash and i think that's a rather a tragic reflection on so much of our country you know we're having to put out the begging bowl because we can't afford to show our own pictures in the uk around the uk for our own audiences now i, I that may sound a little bit xenophobic I'm, I'm all in favor of international loans and and sharing what we have and cultural cooperation but but not just to get money i think that's yeah. rather tragic we should say that while we have been very critical of the national portrait gallery's closure don't you think they've actually been rather lucky because um during the last year and a half with the pandemic they would have had to be shut anyway. So they've got their sort of staff reductions out the way. They've got all their budget uh, lined up for the next three years. So they haven't had to go through the sudden shock and pain of every other gallery in the UK. Um, mm. they've, they've timed it rather well. Yes, they have been lucky. This pimping of the portraits, as, as you so rightly call it, uh, has coincided with a, a general lockdown. Um, and they don't deserve that luck, frankly, because I think that their plans to shut the gallery for three years were outrageous, as you know. Um, we'll see what, what happens there. Um, it, it's a gallery that, for me, has lost a lot of its purpose. You know, I mean, it was set up to genuinely represent um, the great portraiture tradition of Britain to show us the great faces. But it just seems to, 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 to be set on a road to get kind of more and more hip and more and more trendy rather than more and more honest. Um, so no, I don't. I don't like. I don't like any of this really. But um, anyway, we better move on. We can't just moan about the pimping all the time, can we? We, we need some positivity on this podcast. Anyway, with, with so much bad news emerging from the art world, it's good to escape, isn't it? So uh, I think we need to go somewhere that's that's more healthy, somewhere where you can smell the manure. We're back on the farm, Bendy. Bendel Grosvenor's farm. Now, uh, usually when we come here, we get our feet dirty, don't we? Looking at animals in art. But this time, to celebrate spring, we're going to be looking at something a bit less mucky, aren't we? We are. And, Waldy, you're lucky that we can't smell each other through Zoom because, you know, yesterday, all day yesterday, I was shoveling manure. Um, I've been doing a lot of shoveling shit lately because we're planting some new trees. You're very good at it because I've heard you on this podcast. I mean, it's I, I'd put it down as one of your specialities. Yeah. Well, I can tell you actually from experience that the phrase like shit off a shovel is actually a complete misnomer because <laughs> shit does not fall very easily off the shovel. But, Waldi, at the moment, we're going to focus on something slightly more fragrant and go to the garden. I love gardening. And we're going to look at the history of the garden in art and choose our favourite garden picture. And the first painting we're going to look at is actually an illustrated manuscript. It's in the collection of the British Library, and it's called The Book of the Rose. And it was painted in about 1500 by, uh, we don't know who they were, but they're called the Master of the Prayer Books. And it's a series of illustrations of a well-known medieval tale uh, which depicts a lover's quest for a rose. It's a sort of allegorical poem of chivalric love. And the picture I've chosen for us to look at um, is a very early depiction of a walled garden. So can you see there, well, that we see our hero about to enter the door of the walled garden, and inside mm -hmm. we have fountains and fruit trees and all sorts of loveliness, and it's a really, really beautiful picture. 
It is a pretty picture, I agree. And of course, you know me and walled gardens. Um, now, you've very much taken the lead on this uh, discussion uh, today. Um, and I know that my own hope was that if we talked about walled gardens, we might go Catholic again and talk about walled gardens as a symbol for the Virgin Mary. You know me and my Catholic roots. I can't stop talking about them. And the walled garden um, is is one of the great symbols of, of the Virgin Mary. I mean, it comes from a, the Song of Solomon, doesn't it? Uh, a line about a garden enclosed is my sister my spouse spring shut up a fountain sealed and there's loads of art really that shows the virgin mary um, either surrounded by the, one of these enclosed gardens or there's a hint of it in the background things that famous pictures things like leonardo da vinci's annunciation frangelico's annunciation um but yes it it's a very long poem in honor of you bendy i started to read it and, and did it as dutifully as i could <laughs> Boy, does it go on. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. So this bloke, I mean, the, the watercolour uh, listeners, uh, this beautiful, pretty uh, chivalric image shows a chap standing outside the walled garden. He's talking to a, a young lady uh, and, and the gate is closed very much. There's a door closed in front of them and beyond them is the garden that he's trying to get into. So this guy is called the lover in the poem. Um, the lady trying to let him in now is one of the many, many, emblematic women who pop up in this poem in this case she represents idleness because all the women here and it's a rather misogynistic poem all the women here who represent things like envy vanity idleness i mean they're always inevitably female all the characters so um it's a it's been accused of being a bit misogynistic this poem and i can see why Anyway, so he's about to go in and then he's going to meet all sorts of other characters and then he's going to meet some more characters and those characters are going to meet even more characters. So it goes on for thousands of verses. I mean, this must be one of the uh, the longest. I know one of the most popular medieval poems. Well, so You, you um, know how keen we are to recite poetry on the podcast, Melody. I, I thought yes. I would do the first 12 pages. Are you ready? No, you can't do the first 12 pages. You can give me a verse, maybe. Go on, give, give me a verse no, if you've got one in front of you. I'm not going to no. give you a verse at all, don't no. worry. But I do think we should mention uh, that little uh, books like this were very popular and widely printed and disseminated and reproduced. Um, and they helped encourage the spread of the, you know, the conceit of the wall garden. So what we see here is everything very ordered. The Renaissance ideal of, of ordering and controlling nature for the first time. Um, and we see little shady trees, shady arbors for the ladies to, to rest in out of the sun. Um, and, do you know, incidentally, do you know why resting for ladies out of the sun was important? I do know that. Ah. It's because, um, as in many, many, many cultures, um, you didn't want to get sunburned because if you got sunburned, it meant you were a labourer and you were working outdoors, um, whereas if you're pale, you don't work outdoors. So that's why there's a whole caste system in India where pale skin versus dark skin becomes important. In Japan, people paint their faces white, and it's all to prove that you don't actually have to work for a living. You can sit under a tree all day. Yeah. Well, you might that's be right, able to tell. It? It, it is right, I think. But you might be able to tell from, from your Zoom camera body that I'm looking very tanned at the moment because I've been in the garden so much. So uh, burnishing my working class credentials here. Yes, you are the lover to Lady Chatterley, definitely. <laughs> anyway, so as I was saying, uh, it, books like this helped um, spread and particularly bring to Britain the idea of the walled garden and ordering nature. And a little sort of, they became uh, manuals for the Tudor gardener. So um, really quite important little pictures, these. Mm. Do you know, I'm sorry, but I have a slight resistance to these impeccably neat chivalric gardens. I'm wild at heart, Bendy. My <laughs> idea of a garden is somewhere where anything grows that fancies, that's sort of fertile and, and, and bulging with stuff. And these very neat, very ordered gardens. You're going to love our next entry, Wildy, because we're jumping forward a century to a picture that's in the Tate Gallery, and it's by uh, an amateur artist called Sir Nathaniel Bacon, and it's called A Cook Made with Still Life of Vegetables and Fruit. Now, in this picture, um, it's more about gardening than a garden. So we do actually see a glimpse of garden out the back, but it's a vegetable garden. It's full of lovely cabbages. And the picture is a still life, and we see uh, mounted up on the table in baskets before us, 
huge quantities of fruit and vegetables. It's a giant canvas. It's more, more than two and a half meters wide. We have enormous cabbages. Uh, look at those beautiful artichokes. Oh, you want to dip those in melted butter, don't you? Uh, lovely grapes and peas. And um, the most obvious thing we're supposed to look at in this picture, and the reason I think it might appeal to you, Maldi, mm. are the melons. It's all about the melons, this picture. Do you want to tell us what you see? <laughs> it is all about the melons. Um, Sir Nathaniel Bacon was a sort of amateur artist, wasn't he, of the um, early 17th century. Um, and this is his masterpiece. I remember when the tape bought it. Uh, it, it suddenly changed our whole idea of what British art was up to at the time. Um, with giant fruit and veg surrounding a very comely and buxom cook made so there's a girl in the middle showing us a, a lot of decolletage and i mean a lot of decolletage so as she cradles this melon in front of her next to her is another melon that's been cut open and i think it's fair to say that there's a rhyme going on between um the melon by her side and her decolletage and i think it's a very deliberate rhyme and i think uh, melons as this rather smutty um, uh, equivalent of, um, of, of buxomness um, entered the British mind at that time. And do you know what? It's still going on today. So if you were watching a carry-on film from the 1950s with Sid James going, oh, look at the melons on her, you know, you're seeing here the origin of that way of thinking, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of early vulgarity. This is carry-on still life. It is a carry-on still life, yeah. yeah. Look, at what's, look what's happening with the cabbages. Uh, the cabbages are, are very alluring. Um, there's all sorts of carrots in the appropriate um, angle um, and fortitude and various pairs of grapes and, and other dangling fruits. Um, so I was I was interested to see how you'd handle that one, Weldon. Well, you did it very diplomatically, very well. Uh, but we should also say in Sir Nathaniel Bacon's defence that not only was he um, clearly a bit of a Sid Jameser when it came to painting, uh, but exactly. he was actually genuinely interested in horticulture. And he was probably the first person to grow melons uh, in Britain. So um, he used to go on these regular trips to Europe and, and the Low Countries, uh, where he brought back all these specimens. And he he also saw um, still lives by the likes of Peter Ertzen, who we featured on this podcast before. And he yes. it was who not only brought back melons to Britain, but this format of painting. And so he's he's really quite a significant figure in the development of British art. Mm. Yes, he is. Uh, and in a minute, I'm going to ask you the two things that relate Sir Nathaniel Bacon to uh, to my man, my great 17th century hero, William Dobson. So you can think about that for a minute while I ask you another question. So, so there's a woman sitting there with, with, with very buxom, holding her melon, doing a kind of Sid James thing. And the cabbages, these huge cabbages. I think cabbages were also thought for some absurd reason to be an aphrodisiac in the 17th century. As far as I, as I can understand it, they, they, they caused wind in those that, that ate them. Um, and, and for some other reason, if you have ex excess wind, this, this seemed to be something that helped you in your lovemaking. Don't, don't ask me. This, this is 17th century thing. You haven't tried it. <laughs> I haven't tried it, but definitely cabbages were supposed to be erotic, a kind of aphrodisiac, which is presumably why the biggest cabbage here, the one on the left just of the doorway, seems almost to have like a hand reaching out of it, and the leaves have turned into a sort of hand, which is rather creepily aiming itself at the, um, at the cook maid's bosom. So it is all, the more you look at it, the more Sid James it becomes. But there is one saving grace, which I think uh, unites the picture with, uh, with your own taste as a gardener, because is that not in the background, uh, just under the hand, the creeping hand of the cabbage, is that not a big heap of manure? Is that not where they're growing the melons, on that giant brown heap of manure? Yes, it could well be. You can uh, smell it from here, in fact. Mm, lovely mm. and rich. And of course, the, the point of having so much manure is that it got very hot. And that's how they used to heat the, uh, the houses in which they would grow melons and pineapples and all sorts of things. Mm. Fantastic. Anyway, to, to, to just to digress massively into my favourite territory of William Dobson, there are, there are two things that relate to William Dobson here. First of all, um, Sir Nathaniel Bacon was related to, the painter was related to Francis Bacon, the great philosopher, who wrote the first British book on gardening uh, and whose house near St Albans, Verulam, um, was a uh, was a supposed to be early gardener's paradise, and it was all run, that is to say, the garden um, by um, Sir Francis Bacon's man, who was a certain William 
Dobson, father of my William Dobson. So William Dobson, the painter's dad, was the man who did everything. He was the kind of go-to man for Sir Francis Bacon, Sir Nathaniel Bacon's uncle. So that's one connection. The other thing, uh, when this guy, Nathaniel Bacon, died, there was um, a portrait bust of him made uh, at a church in Suffolk, um, presumably near where this picture is supposed to be set, St. Mary's Church in Culford. And the uh, the portrait, the monument, was done by Nicholas Stone, the great uh, stone carver, who was also painted by William Dobson, my man, and who lived next door to William Dobson on St. Martin's Lane. So Nicholas Stone would have known William Dobson. Presumably Nathaniel Bacon may well have crossed paths with William Dobson as well. So in that wonderful world of irrelevance where none of this matters, uh, William Dobson and Sir Nathaniel <laughs> Bacon are tied across the ages. I love the way you always manage to get William Dobson to be the centre of every art story. It's an ambition of mine. That theory, six degrees of separation. Do you, do you play that game and take everything back to Dobson? You probably can. Yes, and, and you know what? I always manage it. How about that? Not just on this podcast, in real life as well. Let's leap forward in time to um, a slightly more uh, traumatic and troubling garden. This is the view painted in 1794 by Jacques-Louis David, the view from the Luxembourg Palace, or when Jacques-Louis David was in it, the Luxembourg Palace Prison. So what we see here, this is a painting that's in the Louvre. Uh, we see a rather sort of conventional and, and not particularly exciting uh, view down to an area, uh, a courtyard area, sort of fenced off. And beyond it is a park with various, looks like lime trees. And there's a little bit of horticulture going on. There's some growing some corn or something. And then there's some houses in the background that's supposed to be Paris. And the idea is that Jacques-Louis David uh, was in prison for his role in the French Revolution and painted this from his window, thought to be his only known landscape. Mm. It's a wonderful picture. Yes, I mean, of course, we all know David as this great neoclassical painter. So most pictures by him show uh, in a sort of frozen fashion various bits of classical heroism, don't we? There's the oath of the Horatii swearing that they will stand by Rome till their death. Um, and there's a death of Seneca passing out on his in, in his deathbed. But it's all heroic stuff, which is supposed to fill people who look at it with a sense of, um, of, 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 of what they could do for their nation, what they can do for their country. It's all, it's all definitely sort of political, big political art. So this is very different. This is suddenly a much simpler looking image, a much fresher looking image. And I think most people looking at it would find it hard to believe that it's a David. But yes, it is. As you so rightly said, it was painted when he was uh, imprisoned in the Luxembourg Palace during the French Revolution for his revolutionary ambitions. He was very much a pro-revolutionary guy. And it's the view from his windows, apparently. So he's looking down on this geometric space and this could not be different really from your love garden that you started with or indeed some Nathaniel Bacon's vegetable garden with all the um, melons in it because it's just a bare expanse of sand or something some sort of grubby plain soil with a fence going round it very geometric which creates I think this sense of imprisonment it's it's so the garden becomes a kind of extension of the prison so there's some kind of symbolism going on here which no one has successfully unraveled but which in my opinion probably relates to some kind of idea about the imprisonment of ideas um, about the imprisonment um, of, of the painter so in other words the whole garden has taken on this symbolic ambition to extend the sense of being locked up and extend the sense of being imprisoned but the minimalism of it the geometry of the garden these rather beautifully painted trees beyond the simple view of paris I mean, it does create something very different for David. I think it's a wonderful picture. Oh, it's so interesting. And it's just one of those pictures that makes you realise how fascinating our world is, how fascinating art history could be. Because, you know, when you first see it, it looks like really, to be honest, a rather pedestrian little picture, doesn't it? I mean, nothing exciting going on. But as soon as you realise that he's imprisoned, and he's, this is his view for probably the best part of a year, and that might be his little exercise yard down there, then, goodness, it takes on so much more meaning of an artist who, you know, was worrying at the time. I mean, he, David came within a whisker of having his own head chopped off by the guillotine in the French Revolution. As you said at the beginning, he was very involved in the revolution. Uh, he signed the death warrant for King Louis XVI. Uh, he was best friends with Robespierre. Uh, he was on the rather sort of gnomically named 
uh, Committee of General Security, which basically ran the terror. So David was not only painting sort of uh, great um, patriotic scenes, but he was actually getting down and dirty, uh, dipping his fingers in the blood. And he was imprisoned after the fall of Robespierre uh, and was going to be brought forward for trial, but just managed to to, to evade the guillotine himself. So um, what a profound little picture this is painted in mm. his cell as he was yearning to get out and get back to painting. Mm, mm. In, the, in the words of Oscar Wilde in his great um, ballad of Reading Jail, he was that, that little patch of blue that prisoners call the sky. It's that sort of mood, isn't it? Mm. Um, listeners, those of you who don't know David's work, uh, I bet you know the most famous painting that was inspired by this one. In other words, which famous artist looked at this and then went on to do his own work inspired by it? Um, I don't know if any listeners know that. Do you know, Bendy? Uh, is it indeed the next one on our list? No, it isn't. <laughs> Although that, it's Van Gogh. Um, when Van Gogh was put inside the mental home at San Remy, you know, he was in prison there for a long time. He too um, had only one window and he looked out. Um, and you know the famous paintings um, of San Remy where you see a walled garden outside. Um, that was actually inspired by a print of, of the David. So in other words, when Van Gogh was put inside the mental home, it inspired him to look at David again. And his own pictures about his own incarceration at San Remy were inspired directly by this. And of course, what Van Gogh does to them, though, is, is fill them with hope and a sense of, of what may lie ahead, the, the growth of the corn, the freedom, the sunshine. But it was all coming from this. So um, it's a powerful, important little picture, this, um, and, and, and a really fantastic one. I, I love it. I always look this up when I'm, when I'm in Paris. But let's move on. What's next? What's next? I should have perhaps have chosen the Van Gogh for our next choices. But in fact, our next two choices do follow the theme of the David. They are both looking out at the garden from a window. And actually, we're going to start in 1815 with a picture, a pair of pictures, in fact, by John Constable. Uh, these are on display in Christchurch Mansion in Ipswich. Uh, and they are the scenes from the house that Constable grew up in, uh, the house of his father, Golding Constable. And we're looking down on the family garden. In the first one, it's a sort of flower garden. There's flower beds, uh, roses, I think, a, a little bit of lawn laid out. It's quite a revealing. It's a sort of very middle-class garden. This is uh, showing us that in the 19th century, particularly in Britain, um, gardening was was being taken to heart by the, the middle and upper classes. And so we see little manicured lawns and everything is getting uh, quite ordered and dainty. And the other picture is Golden Constable's vegetable garden, which, as you would expect, is a little bit more disorganised and um, uh, going to supply the household's needs. Uh, but what is so interesting about the composition of these two is the fact that um, they're both in shadow and they look rather sad, don't you think? Mm. Well, the, uh, actually... The light is different in both of them, isn't it? I mean, I'll tell you what's interesting, right, is that they, they form a kind of panorama, don't they? Because they, the two pictures side by side. So the left-hand side one is the flower garden. Mm -hmm. The right-hand side one is the vegetable garden. But if you put them together, I've got them up on my screen right now together, they, they go from left to right as a, an expanse, as it were, a view. So this is like the full view that Constable would have had when he looked down from his window into his gardens. Mm -hmm. And so the left-hand side one is his mum's garden, right? And the right-hand side one is his dad's garden. But if if you look at the lighting in them, see, it's different. So I think the, the one on the left, that seems to be morning light. And the one on the right seems to be more like twilight. And I suspect that in this sense of panorama, there's also a developing sense of the day. So there's like morning is, is mum's garden, evening is dad's garden. Um, well, there's, there's lots to talk about here, isn't it? I mean, th th there is the actual gardens themselves. So they do indeed show you the developing taste of the middle-class garden. I mean, I think this is, must be one of the earliest paintings of the Great British Lawn, isn't it? The, the mum's garden's got this very precise uh, over-mowed lawn with a flower bed, round flower bed in the middle. It's, it's not the kind of garden I like, to be honest with you. Um, but we know, don't we, that Constable's mum used to like pottering about in it. And, and, and in fact, I believe just before she died, in the same year as this was painted, um, she, she, she actually had her first sort of attack, the first illness was in the garden while she was gardening. So it's loaded with personal meaning. Um, and the dad picture too is loaded with personal meaning because the dad died soon afterwards as well. So his vegetable garden um, becomes this rather sort of sad lament upon him. And, and Constable kept these two pictures, didn't he, all his life, never mm. sold them, 
kept them. So uh, it's a poignant landscape, which not only tells us about gardening history, but which also becomes or, or features the garden as something incredibly personal for the painter. Yeah, and well, I think you've touched, you've you've summarised the mood of them perfectly with the light. The focus is on the light here, uh, mm. because in the left-hand picture, the picture of the mother's garden, um, that was painted in 1815, just after his mother died. So mm. John Constable's brother, Abram, writes to him and says, in February 1815, uh, mother was attacked yesterday morning whilst weeding in the garden. So in this picture, we see the garden is mainly in shadow and there's no one in it. Whereas the, mm. the picture of the right, the vegetable garden, is, as you say, slightly more lit. There's someone in it. But of course, a tragedy was to come because um, Constable's father also died shortly afterwards in 1816. Mm. So, so, as we said, loaded with personal meaning. And people do invest that sort of stuff in their gardens, don't they? Mm. They do become very personal. I mean, I, I, I'm talking at the wrong end here in the sense that I don't really know much about gardening, certainly nothing compared with you. You know, you, you, you're a well-known horticulturalist. I'm just a bloke that looks out uh, occasionally at gardens. But I, you can just absolutely sense the personal, deep, private meaning of them. Um, and it is as, as a document of how garden gardens changed, and particularly the English country garden, how it came to be what it is, uh, you couldn't ask for, for sort of more telling evidence. Um, uh, let's move on, though, because um, I, I've gone, I mean, you, you haven't let me say anything really in the garden history. You're such a horticulturist. You basically shut me up on the whole subject uh, and you ruled out pretty much all of all, all the things that I wanted to have in here. But you did allow me to sneak in with one bit of messy garden. Um, and that's a, a painting by Lucian Freud, which was uh, done more recently. Um, it's a modern picture um, and it's a view from his studio in Paddington, uh, and it's a view of what he could see when he looked out of his window and looked out uh, at the garden next door. And what did he see when he looked out at the garden next door? He saw an almighty mess. Now, these are the kind of neighbours from hell, which I suspect some people would hate to have living next to them. I mean, they've thrown everything into the garden. It's completely overgrown in this case. And I think there's a toilet seat down there. Um, there's what looks like a bits of old fridge. Um, there's loads of bits of thrown out shoes and clothes and all the plants in the garden have gone haywire. So they're growing all over the place. I mean, if you're any kind of horticulturist like you, Bendy, you must, you must hate this kind of garden. But you know what? I rather like it. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. And that is because I think nature would have had more fun in this garden than they would in a typical English garden. There's just stuff here for, you know, there's, there's little places that hedgehogs can hide under. They could hide under the old fridge, hide under the toilet seat. Um, all that plant life that's growing up, the wild plants, the buddlier, the things, that, that stuff that pollinators would like, bees and butterflies. Um, so the sense of mess uh, which is beautifully painted by Freud, by the way. I mean, it's a sort of absolutely haunting clarity to all this and, and, and to the houses beyond. But this sort of messy garden is quite a fertile place. And, and you know, I, I think just, just to sort of leap ahead for a moment, I think the great British garden needs to get messier. We need to stop thinking so much about order uh, and, and clarity in the way we plant things. And we need to think much more about what's healthy for nature and wildness. So uh, that, that's something that I think Freud is pointing us towards. Although I agree, you wouldn't really want to see this much of a tip next to you when you look out your window. Yeah, I suspect uh, maybe some parts of nature do like the old toilet seat in the garden. Perhaps perhaps we should experiment with that here, Waldi. Well, I imagine slow worms, adders, grass snakes, <laughs> they could live under a toilet seat, uh, couldn't they? I wouldn't like to see wonders under your toilet seat, but um, in your garden. But uh, well, the, this is such a lovely choice, actually, because it is. There's no beauty in it, but the whole thing is beautiful. And Freud, in fact, he said that he he paid the rubbish men to leave the rubbish in the garden for a little bit longer as he was painting it. And this is painted in the early 1970s, I think, when he was um, going through one of his many uh, periods of some personal crisis and was being encouraged by his then wife, I believe to stop just focusing on painting people in the studio and to look out the window. And he painted what he saw in that brilliant Freud-like way. No uh, gloss, no flattery, uh, nothing other than the truth. And uh, this could be, uh, for all its sort of brutalness, one of the most brilliant depictions of a garden in, in British art history, couldn't it? I, I completely agree with you. And, and the brutality is one of the things that makes it so, so interesting. Yes, I mean, he, he was such a... 
independent spirit, wasn't he? I mean, you, I always get a very strong sense of him from this. And by that, I just mean, well, I suppose that's true also of the constable and indeed of the David, just the sense of the painter at the window, that, that mood, you feel that you are in the place of the painter, don't you? Because yeah. you're, you're yeah. looking down on the thing. You just get a, such a strong sense of, of someone sort of looking and absorbing and thinking about what they can see. Um, and it's it's this bird's eye viewpoint looking down that, that gives you that. And, and, and just, it's such a wonderful thing for a painter to do, to make the garden this messy and to leave it like that and, and to fight the system and to fight the establishment and to fight the status quo that way. Um, I, I love it. And, and as you say, the, the heightened sense of realism just makes it kind of sparkle, gives it, it gives it a beauty that almost it doesn't deserve. Wonderful picture. Well, hurrah for gardens in art. Should we just anoint one of our favourite choice? What do you, I could probably guess what it's going to be. Can you? I don't think you can, but uh, go on. What's yours first then? I would actually go for the David. Uh, because I think it's such a sort of unconventional garden, but it's such a, a powerful little picture for what it reveals. Do you know what? I would have gone for David as well, but I didn't expect you to say that. Uh, yes, indeed. It, it's it's unexpected. It's it's a brilliant little jewel in an interesting career. And it's just loaded with stuff, isn't it? It's loaded with this wonderful mood. And it's also the only garden here that's got a sense of minimalism about it. And, and minimalism is always good. Okay, so we're unanimous. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the both of us like the David. So that's, that's a, a bit of good news. Um, and there's more good news coming up. This whole podcast is filled now with good news from here till the end uh, because this is the section of the uh, the podcast where you and I get to dream about what we can have on our walls during these final limp weeks of the lockdown on the wall Ah, Bendy, yes, on the wall. Although um, I think you're not really staying indoors, are you? Uh, you're, you're back in your garden again with your choice. At least you're filling the air with the, the sweet fragrance of flowers again, aren't you? Oh, I'm continuing the horticultural theme, Weldy. And this is a still life by someone called Mary Moser. She's not as well known, perhaps, as she should be. But she was, in fact, uh, one of the founder members of the Royal Academy in 1769. Now, did you know that she was the first and until 1936 only full British female member of the Royal Academy, Wildey? Actually, I did know that oh. because I happened to know that the the next one that came along was Dame Laura Knight, right? Yeah. Um, who is an artist that I respect a lot and like a lot and, and try and buy the prints by. So, so I do know that, Good. yes, but not much else. I know nothing else about her. Well, we must do more to propagate her work because uh, she was a trailblazer um, and she was not allowed, like female artists at the time, to study art in the conventional way. So life classes, for example, were forbidden to her. And in fact, in Johann Zoffany's uh, depiction of the original founder artists of the Royal Academy, uh, where they are all in a, a life class, so people like Reynolds and what have you are, are drawing a male nude, Mary Moser is not in the scene, nor is her only other female academician colleague, uh, Angelica Kaufman, they are represented on little pictures up on the wall because they were not allowed mm. to see the nude male buttocks. So, uh, not surprisingly, the sort of art that Mary Moser was obliged to paint were still lives like this. So I've chosen a vase, a fairly conventional vase of flowers, which is in the collection of the Fitzwilliam Museum, and they have a number of her works there. She's probably best known, Mary Moser, for still lives like these, although she did do history pictures, which have all disappeared without trace, so keep your eyes peeled for those, everyone. She did, uh, there's something called the Mary Moser Room in uh, Frogmore House, which is one of the houses of the royal family. Um, she was patronised particularly by Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III and herself a keen horticulturalist. And one of the reasons I've chosen this vase, well, do we see a little collection of tulips and I think some Philadelphus, and it's all very uh, nicely painted. But do you see, well, if you zoom in on the vase itself, can you see the little creature that is there? On the bottom of oh, the vase. Is there a little creature? Let me just zoom away. Is there a sculpted horse? It's a is goat. A, horse? a horned a goat? goat. Oh, a horned goat. And it's actually uh, relating to the sign of Capricorn. Mary Moser did a number of these vases with sort of, um, now I always get the two muddled up. Is it astrological or astronomical? Astrological. Astrological star sign. Now, I googled you, Weldy, um, and mm. you are, in fact, a Capricorn, aren't you? I am a Capricorn, a proud Capricorn. Yes, like uh, same birthday as John Singer Sargent, 
Um, my birthday is also shared by Long John Baldry, the great 60s pop singer. <laughs> so, yes, we're all Capricorns. Well, I decided I'm going to have this um, Mary Moser on my wall to remind me of Mary Moser and also of you, Aldi, because you're a Capricorn. And I read in Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, that great Bible of all things, astrological, that Capricorns are, it says here, ambitious, determined, materialistic and strong. They'll keep going when others would have given up 10 miles back. This makes them great partners in life as well as friends or collaborators. So, Waldy, that perfectly sums you up in my mind. Yes, a stubborn old goat. That is me through and through. Um, and not only that, you know, the other things that Capricorns do, you know, they, they tend to be sort of naysayers. They're stubborn. They go their own way, you know. And um, there are things about this picture that I don't like. Okay, I'll, I'll come to them. Um, I First of all, yes, Mary Moser on the bigger topic here. Absolutely scandalous that she was the, the first and pretty much only uh, female Royal Academy for, for well over a century. That's appalling. It tells you everything you need to know about why the Royal Academy was a bad thing. Um, and, and also, I suspect that, as you so rightly say, the fact that she became principally known as a painter of still lives and flower pictures was more to do with what people told her she should be doing rather than what she probably wanted to do herself, because this is the direction that women were pushed into mm. um, by yeah. these awful misogynistic societies. Um, yes, yeah, so what's interesting about this, right? It, it's at first sight you'd take this to be um you know a dutch still life it, it, couldn't you you know one of those typical dutch flower paintings by um um uh by jan bruegel or one of those sorts of painters in that it's a vase full of flowers uh, you know van huysen that sort of guy except the big difference here is that there's no insects on it now if you look at almost any dutch still life that shows a big vase of flowers like this there will be a fly or a lizard or something that that represents the passage of time the way decay hits us all that's always in there because all these dutch still lives are always moralizing um but that's not that's not happening here you know this is just a beautiful bouquet of flowers principally uh, being admired for the fact that they're beautiful flowers right the other thing I noticed, and this is, I'm sorry, but this is me wearing my, my enwilding of the flower garden hat again. Um, see, the types of flower that are here, these are mostly the types of flower that I have a problem with these days, right? And I'll tell you why. So look, you've got narcissus, right? And daffodil type flowers. Um, you've got roses, uh, but they're double roses, not the single roses. Um, you've got um, you've got tulips, very sort of floppy tulips. You've got an anemone at the front. Um, and now, what have all these flowers got in common, apart from the fact that they're sort of big and colourful? Um, what they have in common is that they don't produce nectar. They've all been bred in such a way that they are beautiful and they look great, but they don't produce nectar. So they don't attract pollinators. And these are sometimes deliberately bred so that bees and wasps and things and butterflies wouldn't go into the garden and wouldn't actually pester you while you're gardening. And that's this terrible development in horticulture where natural flowers produce a lot of, you know, roses originally produced a lot of nectar, but once you start breeding them to be double and treble roses, you know, the stamens turn into petals and they don't produce it anymore. So, this, although it's a beautiful bouquet of flowers, this is not a fertile bouquet of flowers of the sort that pollinators would like. So, you know, uh, listeners, if you're the garden type who uh, likes this kind of art and who has a garden and looks after it, you know, plant stuff that, that bees and wasps and other pollinators like, because that's the way forward for nature. If you think how much of Britain now is taken over by people's gardens, just think how more wonderful it would be if all those gardens were a little bit more fertile, a little bit more pollinator friendly. Oh, well, dear. Well, that's another thing it said in the Cosmopolitan rundown of Capricorn traits that you're lovely and sensitive people and you care about these things deeply so well dear, I'm sorry the art didn't do it for you but there are actually if you have a look in the Fitzwilliam collection there are other uh, still lives by Mary Moser um, there's another one which even has uh, insects in it and little birds which I know you like very much so perhaps you should have that one on your wall instead I, yes, I, I'll go and look it up. Yes, I mean, Mary Moser, I'm totally for. I mean, please, let's have an exhibition of her work. I'd love so much to know more about her. And of course, the fact that um, that this particular bouquet uh, hasn't got any pollinators in it doesn't mean that her other ones don't, because I'm sure she's a good thing.
Anyway, it's wonderful that you chose her because it's absolutely right to right the wrong that is the absence of women in the Royal Academy rather ingloriously. Because you've been so nice to me and, and you've, you've said nice things to me, I rather ingloriously, I, I chose something this week almost deliberately to annoy you a bit. Um, <laughs> listeners, do you remember last week, Bendor had a, had a bit of a pop at Yoko Ono. We were talking about Yoko Ono a lot. Um, and, and he said he didn't really like her art much. Um, and he even slightly complained about the fact that the interview that we, we did with her was a little bit too much about music and not enough about art. Um, and um, I bridled a little bit at all that. Uh, and I thought that to get my revenge, um, I would go for even more Yoko Ono in my On The Wall. And not only that, I went for something that was pretty much as hardcore as I could, as I could think of. So I've gone for an absolutely marvellous piece by Yoko Ono, which is actually a recording of um, what they used to call happenings, but uh, later I think became called performance art. But it's a sort of happening. What happened in this happening, uh, which was originally performed in 1965, uh, is that Yoko Ono knelt down on a stage dressed in a black dress, uh, and she had a pair of scissors next to her, and she invited the audience to come up onto the stage uh, and cut away her clothing. And there are various shaky records of this happening. Uh, there's a couple of videos that are not easy to look at because they're a bit shaky, but, but they do record the atmosphere of the thing. And so people come up, and at first they just cut away little corners of the black dress. Um, then they kind of get rid of the black dress, and she's there in her underwear. Uh, and then they start attacking the underwear. And, and it all becomes this rather tense scene of, you know, how far will people go? What's happening to the artist? So um, the thing is, I, was, I, I wasn't able to see this original performance, this original happening, uh, because I was too young. But if I, uh, if I have it on the wall through the, the magic powers of on the wall, I'm able to have it recreated for me. So I'm going to make sure that this happening happens again in front of me and I can feel all the edgy, interesting, conceptual power um, of uh, one of Yoko Ono's great pieces. Uh, what do you think of all that, Bendy? I think of all that. Um, what I, did, I wasn't being unkind to Yoko's art. I was just saying in my limited way, I don't really understand it. And I was um, uh, slightly wondering about the interview, but uh, I'm surprised you've, you've decided to, and I'm not surprised actually, rather, that you've decided to bring this up one week later, because do you know what else I read in my Cosmopolitan Guide to Capricorns? That, uh, that in addition to being sensitive, it's also quite touchy and um, bear a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely says that. <laughs> a lifelong grudge. Yes. <laughs> so, let's not have too much of a fight over Yoko Ono. Do you know, I really, I can see the point of this happening. It is, it must have been when it was done in the 1960s, quite a powerful and radical thing. Uh, I find it quite an uh, uncomfortable watch, actually. Mm. Um, I'm glad that the video you sent me kind of stops before the underwear comes off. I mean, it's, it's quite brutal, isn't it? And I suppose that's uh, that's what she was trying to highlight: the this idea of of, of being attacked with scissors and and men coming up and taking bits off, and uh, that's different to the bits that the women were chopping off. And um, yeah, it made me feel uncomfortable. Um, I like art that I can sort of look at and feel um, positive, warm, and glowing things. But that reflects very much my my own limitations and and sensitivities. Well, no, it's not a question of limitations or sensitivities. You see. Okay, let, let's call this conceptual art. Okay, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a happening, but it's a sort of display of conceptual art. The way conceptual art works, right, things like this is, I mean, it's a, it's a pebble and you throw it into a pond and you see the ripples and you see where they go. And so it, there isn't a specific meaning to this. Uh, there isn't to any real performance or happening. There is this, as it were, prompting of reactions, a, a sort of sending of the ripples to the edge of the pond. And if you feel that this is very much a piece about, um, let's say, masculinity and how the blokes come on and they, they cut stuff off more, more aggressively than the women who are quite delicate about what the clothing they cut off, that's your reading of it. And it's not a wrong reading it, because there is no wrong reading here. Um, I think it's a, it's a piece also about the sort of vulnerability of women. Um, I think it is a commentary on, on the modern world, but I think it's also a setting up of a theatrical situation, a, a moment of drama, just to see how far people will go. Um, the very fact that it just gets your mind going and, and you start sort of thinking around it, you know, into bigger meanings, bigger possibilities, is how this stuff works. 
And I really, I chose it really because it's almost like an exemplary piece of Yoko Ono conceptual art in that there are other readings of it. And I suppose, you know, it, it, it's all about just being prepared sometimes to go with stuff like that and just seeing where it takes you. And if you feel that it's interesting, there is no wrong reaction or right reaction. Nothing you can say is wrong about this work of art. It just proves that, you know, you've been prompted to think about it and that, and that you've been sort of prompted in various interesting directions. So, um, yeah, that's what it's about. And I can see that I'm already, see, I'm, I'm hacking away at the Bendel Grosvenor armour. There's a glint or two there of a Yoko Ono lover <laughs> you know, popping up. I can see it from here, Bendy. I can see that expanding. Do you know, Weldy, I have been part of a piece of a conceptual art and myself. Uh, I, many years ago for the BBC, I made a film about the Venice Biennale, um, and the the conceit of the film is I went round with my friend Alistair Souk and I was the sort of the, the old art lover going on about Tintoretto and Titian and Alistair was talking about the modern conceptual stuff and I was being grumpy about that and he was being grumpy about mine and we sort of, you know, like all these things, there was a journey and we came together at the end with a piece of conceptual art in St Mark's Square in Venice and the whole these two people two artists came and started shouting and they were just shouting and everybody sort of didn't know what to make of it and the point was we all joined in and i joined in shouting with some gusto so i was part of it it made a very uh, good ending of the film but i didn't half feel like a bit of a prat oh well you shouldn't have done I mean, that's good to hear you see this is the thing about art bendy there's something for everybody <laughs> and this is the great thing about i think about the modern world is that you know i certainly when i when i grew up and uh, when i went to um, university and studied art history there was a very strict divide between high art and low art between Bach and, 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 and the Beatles and then we've chipped away at that and it's possible I think these days I think in fact it's wonderful these days to be able to like uh, conceptual art on one hand Yoko Ono uh, but also to like um, you know the, the master of the prayer book and that beautiful pretty chivalric garden in the British Museum I mean that's the great thing about uh, about art it's it is the endless garden it is the the bottomless joyful uh, place we can all go isn't it bendy so i'm sure we'll agree on that and that's i think a lovely point to finish i mean you know agreement between me and bendy the sound of uh, birds twittering in the garden the smell of the beautiful flowers uh, uh, attracting all those pollinators uh, that for me is a lovely moment to depart so for me it's a wave and uh, an adieu and for me a cheerio <laughs> Waldy and Bendy. Bendy.